People of God in Christ, as we continue this morning uh, on this series of sermons uh, on Psalm 11, let's recall and keep in mind that uh, here is a psalm of faith, we might say. Uh, This was said before uh, with the clarification that uh, this is not a uh, a technical designation, psalm of faith, uh, but simply to acknowledge that Psalm 11 is a psalm by which we can confess our faith. Even more is the psalm by which we can confess our faith for the sake of a great comfort. Here we are again in that season of remembering and highlighting the birth of Christ. And and one of the great prophecies of our Lord's birth and coming um, is Psalm is uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, the great composer Uh, George uh, Frederick Handel uh, began his Messiah oratorio uh, with the singing of these verses so that perhaps we we uh, we know these words especially well Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2 says comfort comfort my people says your God so here so here we have the the prophet Isaiah not only delivering the message of comfort to the people of God, but even more, for the sake of emphasis, uh, he, he makes it clear that this is what God told him to speak. This was God's heart for his people. We might say, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, says Isaiah. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. So what we need to see, to know, and to understand is is that God, our God, is the God of comfort. We sometimes uh, identify the holiness of God as uh, that attribute of God by which he is, is most centrally identified as God, since Isaiah 6 says of God that he is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And we must certainly remember the holiness of God in our faith. Um, when, whenever we worship God, whenever we pray to God each and every day, but, but let this not be missed that the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty is the God who is always ready and eager to comfort His people. Here even is the mark of true faith, that even as we tremble before the holiness of God, yet we draw near to Him in faith. We draw near to Him knowing that He is the God of comfort, And that the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, when rightly heard and understood, is the message of comfort. And so it is that Psalm 11, a psalm of faith, begins with uh, this bold proclamation, this, uh, this rousing claim to, the, to a saving relationship with God. We, we hear this comforting confession of faith in the Lord I take refuge. And that's just the beginning of Psalm 11, because what follows is the substance of that, of that, 
of that confession and claim. It's one thing to say blindly, in the Lord I take refuge. But what does that mean? How, how do you do it? How do you take refuge in the Lord? Will you do it by acknowledging your own weakness and the attack of the evil one by which you know your weakness? And then you do it, you, you take refuge in the Lord by remembering and declaring what you know and believe about your God, that He is near and that He is high. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Which is to say, God is my God, my Emmanuel, God with me through Jesus Christ. And God is on high, reigning and ruling through Christ, over my life. But the lesson of Psalm 11 on how to take refuge in the Lord continues now with the next two verses. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Last time we began with a first point drawn simply from the the name of God, Yahweh, rendered the Lord in our English text. This time, looking at uh, the second half of verse 4 and verse 5, we take our first point, again, not from anything spelled out in the text, but by way of a, a very necessary clarification. We begin by noting the danger of idolatry, indeed, the fatal flaw of idolatry. Have you ever had someone uh, get ready to tell you something by first telling you what you shouldn't be hearing when they tell you? Well, that's kind of the idea here. David the psalmist is about to expand on his, his statement that the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. We looked at these two truths last time, learning uh, or at least remembering that, that God in Christ is both near to his people and yet ruling the world from the highest position of authority in heaven. But what's the effect of that? How does it matter? It matters because God is both aware of and ready to judge the wicked deeds of of mankind. He is near, he is aware. If you drive 20 miles an hour uh, over the speed limit, it hardly matters, right, if there are no police around. And if you drive 20 miles per hour uh, over the speed limit and only encounter an off-duty police officer, it still hardly matters. But you see, God is near. And He is on high. He is both watching and aware. And He is on constant duty as the judge of all the nations. But, as John Calvin once wrote, the human heart is an idol factory. To start with, uh, people are given, which means that your own flesh is given, to decide from the beginning who God should be. Never mind that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 19. 
Never mind that what can be known about God is plain to all mankind because God has shown himself to them in the things that have been made. Romans chapter 1. Sinful man will have his own God and it will always be a God that leaves sinful man to be the higher God over his imaginary God. And in the end, before the great coming of Christ again, the day is prophesied when, when any notion of a God apart from man will be stricken from the consciousness of mankind. And it would seem to me that we are in that very day now that every person is considered free to create for himself or herself what reality really is. But here's, here's the more immediate consideration for Psalm 11, that we need to guard against the temptation of falling back into idolatry, returning by the flesh to the making of our own God. And the temptation is especially strong when we read in Scripture of God's condescensions. We said last time that uh, even God taking a name for himself especially as God takes a name for himself, we, we need to recognize his condescension in doing so. If you are the only employee, remember this illustration, if you are the only employee of the company you work for, then you don't need an employee identification number. You are the employee. If you are the only human being on earth, you wouldn't need a name, which is the case with Adam when he was created and was the only human being on the face of the earth, so that his name, Adam, was really not a name, but simply the Hebrew word for man. Well, so it is with God. He is the only God. He is the one true God. Why does he need a name? He doesn't. But when Moses asked him for his name before the burning bush, God condescended to take the name Yahweh, meaning the great I am. The mistake would be to say that by taking a name, God must have been acknowledging that there are other gods from which he needed to be differentiated by having a name. But the same thing is true whenever God condescends in his revelation of himself. We are always giving, given to assume far too much. So whenever God speaks of himself in human terms, as he does now in, in Psalm 11, that his eyes see, that his eyelids test the children of man, that he apparently is not so different from you and me. He has eyes, after all, doesn't he? By the explicit reference of Psalm 11 verse 4, even more if God is in his holy temple, well, then surely he needs a dwelling place on earth. He must, he must need a house to live in. But that's why Isaiah 66 verse 1 clarifies, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? And this is why Solomon, in his wisdom, upon the completion of the first temple, prayed to God and said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And here is a timely reminder for us in this season of remembering the birth of Christ, which is nothing less than the matter of God's condescension, God's becoming man. Here is the ultimate condescension of God. Here is not God walking in the garden uh, of Eden. Here, here is not God appearing in, in the form of a burning bush. Here is not God uh, appearing even uh, with thunder and lightning and trumpet blast at, at Mount Sinai. Here is God taking to himself the corruptible flesh of mankind and even becoming the lamb, the barnyard animal who takes away the sin of the world. It certainly deserves an an annual remembrance. But the problem with Christmas is, is that what happened in the birth of Christ actually deserves a weekly, not annual, but weekly remembrance. And if it does not melt your heart to utter humility and bring you to your knees every day, then we really have no business claiming that we're celebrating Christmas each December. We've only made, uh, we've only made of Christmas what we want it to be because we've only made of Christ who we want Him to be because we've only made of God what we think He should be. We've taken, we've only taken the, the condescension of God, the, the amazing, marvelous, gracious to no end condescension of God, and we've used it to further our idolatry, our own notion of who God should be. So with all of that clarified, Let's turn now to the second point, which is the first explicit point of the text, the eyes of God. Verse 4 finishes by saying, His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. Does God have eyes as, as we have them? Clearly no. But here is what we must understand, that, that God is not unaware of the wicked deeds, the evil actions of mankind. And why is this a comfort for the psalmist? How is it part of what it means to take refuge in the Lord? The answer comes by remembering that He is the Lord. He is the covenant God of His people. He is the God who has again condescended to enter into a covenant relationship with His chosen people. Otherwise, who among sinners would want a God who sees all and knows all? We run into the the same problem, uh, the same conundrum in in Psalm 139. And in fact, when you when you start reading Psalm 139, if you had if you had never read it before, you you might wonder whether the psalmist, who is again David, whether he is lamenting who God is or taking comfort in who God is, specifically that He is both omnipresent and omniscient. 
that He is everywhere present and all-knowing. Is that a good thing to the psalmist? Or is it a terror to him? He even writes, You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Generally speaking, we, we don't think of being hemmed in as a good thing. It, uh, it, it means instead that, that we're trapped. And is that what the psalmist is saying? That we're, we're trapped by God, we're hemmed in by Him as an enemy. And yet, overall, in Psalm 139, it becomes clear that David is greatly comforted by knowing and remembering that God is all-knowing and everywhere present. And the reason, do we understand, the reason he is comforted is because he's talking about Yahweh, which is to say he's talking about the God who condescends to make gracious covenant with his people. David stands in covenant relationship with his God. Indeed, God is his God. And he has the gracious promises of God in Christ. Well, it's the same in Psalm 11. Why is it a comfort? Why why is it the matter of taking refuge in the Lord to know that his eyes see, that his eyelids test the children of man? Even more, why is it a comfort, the matter of taking refuge in the Lord, to remember and declare that God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence? Isn't David also among the wicked? Surely he too is a sinner. We know that all too well, do we not, by the testimony of Scripture. Yes, but David has the covenant promises of God. He is a man, a sinner, yes, but a man forgiven by God. A man possessing the saving righteousness of God. The righteousness of faith that depends on the the righteousness of faith that depends on faith. Even more and exactly because he is a, a man under attack from those who stand outside of a covenant relationship with God. David is the target of the wicked so that he takes comfort in knowing, knowing, remembering, and declaring that God has eyes, that God can see, that his God is not oblivious to the deeds of wicked men, especially when those deeds are done as an attack against his beloved covenant people, those whom he dearly loves. And there's even a, a clue here to, to show us that it's, it's not really the case that God has eyes like we have eyes. Uh, re- remember that we, that we are made in his image, not he in, in our image. So even as we have eyes to see, what is immediately before us, so God sees what is immediately before him. But the clue is this, that that the text says, his eyes see, and then it says, his eyelids test the children of man. And isn't that such a, a striking way of making it clear that, yes, God has eyes. He has eyes in the sense that he sees. In fact, he sees all. But even his eyelids see. 
In other words, according to David, even when God has his eyes closed, yet he still sees. When we want to surprise someone, we say, uh, close your eyes. Why close your eyes? Well, because we, we want their eyelids to cover their eyes and to keep them from seeing. Now open your eyes, we say. But you can't do that with God. In one sense, God never closes his eyes. Psalm 121 even says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Which is really to say that God never closes his eyes. But here in Psalm 11, David speaks of God as having his eyes closed, and yet he sees. In other words, he does not see as we see. Instead, we are created in His image so that we see in some limited sense, but He sees all. He doesn't need to have eyeballs as we do in order to see and to know when His eyes are shut, even then His eyelids see. And again, is this a comfort to us when we too are sinners, like those who attack us? Is it a comfort? It is when we are trusting in His grace. So finally, the soul of God. Does God have a soul as we do? No. But here the psalmist is is taking comfort and he is teaching us what is at the very core of God's being. That's what your soul is. In one sense, it's the very core of your being. It is who and it is what you are, your soul. And here David writes of God, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Once again, David is employing uh, an anthropomorphism, as we say. David is, is speaking of God in human terms. And let us not miss the point that there is, there is hatred in the being of God. One of the ways that that man makes of God what he wants God to be, which is to say one of the ways that people create a, a false God by their own imagination, is to think of the love of God as indiscriminate. If God is love, then he must love everyone and he must love everything and he must love every behavior of man without distinction. Everything is good, every person is loved, every deed is acceptable unto a God of love, right? That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture, the God even revealed to us in the person of of Christ, is the God who hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. But here then is a, is a crisis of faith for us, perhaps. Here is, here is the death of all assurance of salvation, it might seem. If God hates the wicked and we show ourselves sinful by, by the sin we still commit, even as believers in Christ, then, then doesn't God hate us? Will He not condemn us along with the wicked? And the answer is no. And the answer is, 
is a great epiphany for us. It, it gives us to see what Paul meant when, when he wrote in Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It gives us to see what Scripture means when it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It gives us to see what it means that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the love of God and the, and the hatred of God are, are not in opposition. In fact, it's, it's God's hatred of evil that makes his love so amazing. God hates sin. God hates the wicked. Yes, there is hatred within the very being of God, but he hates what is contrary to his own holiness. And he hates what is contrary to the good of mankind. And yes, he hates mankind for their treachery against him and for their rebellion against the good and for any attack against the people upon whom he has set his love. But that's the point. That even as God hates the wicked, yet he sets his love upon those whom he would save. When God loves, he loves and he hates at the same time. How can that be? Well, the answer is the cross of Christ, where God displayed his hatred of sin and yet his love toward those whom he chose to save. But here's our comfort, that, that God loved us while we were yet sinners, yet he still, even today, hates the wicked. Next time, we'll, we'll reflect on what God will do about it. You think this subject is rather dicey. Wait till next week, if we can get there, the Lord willing. Do we not do the same thing when we watch the news each night? Do we not hate the one who walks, uh, who walks into a school and starts shooting? Do we not? Do we not hate the one who kills the unborn child in the womb? Do we not hate the the worthless husband and father who abandons his marriage vows and his family? We hate evil, although always to some lesser degree than God hates evil. But what can we really do about it? Well, God can, and he will do something about it. And it will be Christ himself who will come again to judge the living and the dead. But in the meantime, here is a great comfort. Not only that God sees, but that he hates the wicked. The last thing we should want is a God who does not hate sin. Because then what hope would we have of a, of a, a heaven without sin? What hope would there be for a, a world without sin, without evil, without suffering, without death? If God does not hate the wicked and those who love violence. 
Psalm 11 says that from his very soul, from the essence of his being, God hates the wicked. And while that guarantees his judgment one day, yet it doesn't cancel his love, even his saving love and grace. And in fact, we each must recognize that we are counted among the wicked. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God is not like us. He can hate and he can love at the same time. And that's why, or I should say, that's what he did in the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. He hated sin. God hated sin by pouring out wrath and judgment for sin upon Christ on the cross. But in the same cross... By the saving sacrifice of Christ, God poured out love. Even as he hated, he loved. He loved by putting himself there on the cross in the person of his son. He loved by judging Jesus in order to justify you. And the result is your salvation. The result is your salvation if you will repent and believe in this Savior. And the further result is your great comfort in knowing, in believing, in declaring by a confession of your faith that God will judge those who oppose him. The same ones who oppose you, he will judge. And you can even now take refuge in the Lord. You can take refuge in your covenant God, who is indeed your God, because Christ is your Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Do thank you, O God, that even from Psalm 11, we can uh, hear and understand so much of your character, your your identity as creator, God, the great I am, the God who, yes, hates sin, the God who is also the God of love. O Lord, grant us to hear this revelation, to receive it, and to recognize that we need a Savior in Jesus Christ and that we have him as we repent and believe in him and receive him by faith as our glorious and wonderful Savior, grant us this faith and none other and grant us the humility and the, and the willingness to see your condescension at every point, especially in this time of year, as we remember the birth of our Savior, that you by your Son, took on our own flesh. You condescended to save us, even by your, or even despite your hatred for sin. You came in love in the person of your Son, and you saved us. O oh Lord, give us to see and to know this, and to believe it, not just in December, but in every month and every week and every day of the coming year as we would follow after Christ, trusting in him for the salvation that 
can only be ours through him. In his name we pray. Amen.